0: Please open now in your Bibles to Acts 19. Acts 19. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Bible in your pew in front of you. That's our gift to you for visiting today. We want everybody to have a Bible. If you're new to Manoah, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts for well over a year now. We're in chapter 19. In the last five weeks, we've been in Ephesus. We have a book uh, in your New Testament called the Book of the Ephesians, where Paul pens it to Ephesus, the Ephesian Christians. And so Ephesus is a major city. It's also when Jesus speaks to the churches uh, in Revelation. The first of the seven churches is the church in Ephesus. This is a powerful church. Paul establishes this church. And fun fact, church history after he leaves, the Apostle John actually outside of the Bible, but we. We know from church history ends up in Ephesus to continue that work. He pens first second and third John, and also then is exiled to an island nearby called patmos and so Ephesus God is committed to he sends multiple apostles to Ephesus. To continue the work. And today we're seeing kind of the the bow, if you will, at the end of Paul's work in Ephesus. And if you think that after all the miracles we saw and all the healings that we saw and all the exorcisms we saw, everybody would be high-fiving Paul and, and, you know, holding hands, singing Kumbaya together, uh, you would be mistaken because there's some spiritual strongholds in Ephesus at work. And when the power of Christ collides with these spiritual powers and principalities, people get angry because it starts to root out some of the things that people find their identity in that region. And so there's a sense of a threat that starts to build up in Ephesus, two weeks ago, for example, we saw all the people committed to witchcraft burning their books, millions of dollars of books, for example, and so if somebody's still committed to witchcraft, they're probably feeling pretty threatened at this point. But it's not because Paul has somehow taken over the Roman Empire and figured out how to pull all the political levers. That is not how transformation happens in the New Testament in our Bibles. It's certainly not because Paul grabbed the sword of the Romans and started putting it to people's necks and saying, Follow Jesus or you'll die. Not at all. What we're going to see today is that people were persuaded and turned away by Paul, ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the power of God's word. And so I've entitled today's message, Persuaded and Turned Away. As more people are persuaded and turned away from worldliness, corruption, sin, spiritual evil, a riot breaks out at Ephesus. A huge riot we'll actually see today with thousands and thousands of people trying to take down the church and take down Paul and take down the Christians. And so that's where Paul's ministry ends in Ephesus. It begins in verse 21 of chapter 19 and then finishes all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 41. So it's a lengthier section. It's uh, actually verse 23 to 41. It's lengthy, but it's a beautiful story. I'm going to read it in sections and preach through it in three units, three sections today on how Jesus persuades and turns us away from various evils in the world and what he turns us towards. So if you're taking notes, the sermon title is Persuaded and Turned Away, beginning in verse 23. I'll read to verse 27 and then pray for us. Well, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, the way is a shorthand reference to Christianity or uh, the followers of Jesus, a disturbance concerning the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. I love how, by the way, push pause, Luke just loves to say this, like, you know, no little disturbance, no little business, all right? What he's saying there, flip that around in the positive, there arose a huge disturbance concerning the way because Demetrius, the silversmith who made silver shrines of the craftsmen, he brought tons of business to the craftsmen, all right? That's what's going on. Now, verse 25. These he gathered together. He gathered all the craftsmen with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that's the larger region, this Paul has persuaded and turned away, there it is, persuaded and turned away, a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship, persuaded and turned away. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for the powerful persuasive effect of your word and of the scriptures, of the Holy Spirit, of the gospel. We thank you that there is power in hearing your word even now, And I pray as your word is heralded, just as Paul preached it, Lord, that you would be about the business today of persuading and turning our hearts today. Lord God, that we would be a church fully first persuaded ourselves, first turned away in our own souls from evil towards Christ, and also that we would be a church committed to persuade and to turn others to Jesus. Lord, and if it wreaks havoc on industry and business, if it brings you glory, so be it. God, use us, persuade us, turn us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have heard my testimony, and I, I'll tell it more in the vision tour, but for those who are new, I came to Christ towards the end of high school with my twin brother, Matthew. He looks just like me up here in the corner. He's a pivotal part of my story because we were in a rock band together called Molly Cottle. If you've never heard the word "mollycoddle"? You know, typical teenager flipping through an encyclopedia or a dictionary, looking for cool words, right? Oh, this is a cool word. Mollycoddle means a person of weak character who seeks to be pampered and protected. We just thought it sounded cool. And in our teenager angst, we we jumped on the bandwagon, started listening to a lot of dark music, and copying the language that we were hearing from them, and kind of writing all these songs as like 14, 15-year-olds about the girl who ripped out my heart and stepped on it and, you know, it and, you know, cussing our souls out at the uh, garage band events, you know, those sort of things. We thought we were going to hit it big. We got to play at the King of Prussia Mall once at Sam Goody. You guys remember those? They don't, you know. But my brother was coming under the influence. We, we went to some Christian events, and he, he had a, a Christian girlfriend at the time who actually started saying, wait a minute, I don't get it because we played at her church, but we didn't play our music. We played cover songs because <laughs> our songs were very ungodly. So um, we played all these Christian songs, but then when she listened to our music, she's like, I don't get it. You say you love Jesus. You say you're Christians because we were a nominal church going on Sunday Christians, but this doesn't add up. And she started to share the gospel with him. She started to challenge him and persuade him. And all of a sudden, the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell upon him. And he realized he was persuaded that he had to turn away from the band. Now, this created a crisis in his life because the band was our God. Like, this was what we gave all our free time to. It was our hobby. It's what we did. I made the website. I mean, we we walked the hallways pushing our CDs and T-shirts. But all of a sudden, he was persuaded and turned away. And I had this heart to heart conversations with him where he started to challenge me now. And saying, this has become an idol in our lives and we have to turn from this. And I remember when the Holy Spirit nailed me and the, all the truth I heard growing up but didn't really think people lived that way. I thought like you go to church on Sundays and then you live the, the rest of your life however you want. All of a sudden, the claims of Jesus were starting to break into my soul and realize that Jesus being Lord meant a 24-7 claim of my life, including what I say, how I sing, You know, what I sell, everything Jesus has authority and debate over. And in that moment, I was born again, where all of a sudden the light bulb came on, and I was persuaded. We literally quit the band. We said, we're done. We're done with this, and we're going to live for Jesus. And I took the CDs out of my backpack, and I put the Bible in my backpack for the first time. And I no longer walked the halls trying to peddle my merchandise. I started trying to share Christ with people, and I never looked back persuaded and turned away, and each one of you in Christ has a story, has a story where you were persuaded, where you came to Christ, where you turned away. Well, in Ephesus, they are seeing this happen for the very first time. I mean, Paul's been there for two years and three months, and all of a sudden, people who used to have these cool spell books are burning them, (laughs) People who used to go to buy these idols stopped buying them saying, I don't worship those things. I don't think metal is, I don't know, God or gods to be worshipped. Where'd you come up with this idea? We've been worshipping the statues forever, right? Oh, this guy Paul, he's been preaching. I went over to uh, Tyrannus's hall the other day and boom, I just realized God made the earth and he made me. So how could I make him? I can't do that. And so there's a change that's happening where the whole world, and this is not hyperbole, the whole world goes to Ephesus to worship. We'll talk about that in a moment. The whole world is now turning, being persuaded and turning to Christ. And so as we look at this riot that breaks out in Ephesus today, I'm going to break it into three units for us. For the ease of taking notes, so grab that journal and take some notes today. Jesus turns the world away, because that's what he says, she whom all of Asia and the world worship, So the whole world is turning away from Asia. The whole world is turning away from Ephesus. Jesus is turning, persuading the whole world away from, firstly, idolatrous wealth. The first thing, if you're taking notes, is idolatrous Wealth. Now, this is quite literal from the text, right? Because remember, these men make idols, right? They make statues. They make them out of silver. He is clearly, Demetrius is the master of a guild building these silver shrines, these idols. And all of a sudden, he's concerned because Paul is persuaded, again, verse 26, and turned away a great many people saying the gods made with the hands are not gods. Now, he goes into quite a bit of a pietistic thing here saying, you know what, this goddess, our worship, the temple, all of this is going to be undermined. Our sense of who we are as Ephesians, what we believe deeply in our core is threatened. But really, if you pull back the curtain, Luke is kind so often to show us the real motive, which is they're going to lose their wealth. Did you see that earlier? Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. We have our wealth from this goddess. We have this wealth from this temple. And all of the world is going to turn from this temple and turn from Artemis if he keeps up this message, if this message of the way triumphs in Ephesus, we are going to lose our money. All whom the world worships her magnificent may even be deposed. Now I said earlier, he's not speaking in hyperbole. Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world and it was the temple of Artemis. All right, so when you think of the seven wonders of the world, for example, one of them still stands, is the pyramids in Egypt. Can you picture those? Say yes. All right, huge, right? These are like the things you can see kind of in outer space sort of things, you know, or in a a map over. It's like, what's that dot? Oh, that's one of the seven wonders of the world. This temple was huge, and pilgrims would travel all over the world to worship Artemis. Now, Artemis was believed, this is the Greco-Roman era, so they have the pantheon of gods. Oh, great, there's a picture of her. She was this woman who was a, a hunter. She had a short skirt. Uh, she was not married, and so she had no man, an authority over her. She was an independent woman of the woodsmen. She had a bow made evidently from the Cyclops, we're told. Again, all of this is myth, but this is the myth. This is the narrative. These are the stories that inform them. Women who are giving birth would pray to her and so forth. She was a key player in their pantheon of gods, and people would travel. You think of how tourism, for example, shaped so much of Orlando, right? If Disney World shuttered, all of a sudden the whole region would feel it. Religious tourism and pilgrimages have very much the same effect. And if people no longer go there, or they go there but they refuse to buy the shrines, these guys are out of business. I have a picture of the temple. This is kind of a recreation of the epic size of it. And in the very back, go to the next slide, guys, was a big statue to the goddess Artemis. Go over there, guys, to the next slide. There she is in the back. And in the Vatican Museum today, you can still see this statue. They have one of the original ones where you can go back. This was a serious cult following that Artemis had in the world. And this whole group, this whole industry build itself around Artemis and this whole narrative build itself around there. We'll see a little bit later that literally a meteorite landed in Ephesus and they felt like it was a sign from Zeus himself. All right? And so they have a whole backstory that informs this and a whole cottage industry that's built around this. And all of a sudden, the gospel comes in, Jesus, the message of Christ comes in, and it sends shockwaves through Ephesus. All right, Not only like the books are getting burned willingly, but all of a sudden, the industries are being disrupted, not again because Christians are pulling political levers, but because hearts are being changed. And this is how kind of... Free markets work. If I don't want to buy that stuff anymore, demand goes down, right? And there's no more industry. So this guy gets in front of it and says, we got to get these guys out of here pronto. We got to get the way out of here. We got to get the church out of here. We certainly got to get Paul out of here yesterday. And so they stir up this guild to start to fight them. You know, time and time again, this happened, for example, in Philippi where there was a woman that had a spirit of divination. She was possessed. Paul exercised the demon. She could no longer do her divination anymore. And all of a sudden, her owners, they are so ticked off. You know why? Because they were using her for money. They put her out for hire. And Luke also tells us they're mad because they lost their wealth. Very similar thing is happening here. You can hide behind a cloak of piety. You can hide behind the fact that we have this cool temple. You can hide behind this worship that we all love. But in the end, this was about money, and they were angry. Jesus turns the world away from idolatrous wealth. You don't have to worship a different pantheon of gods. Jesus brought this right into the heart of Israel, The church of the day, if you will. Remember the rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? He says, get rid of some of your wealth. Unhitch yourself from this worship God. Help other people. And he says, I can't do that. He walks away sad. Jesus says, it's so hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. But what's impossible with man is made possible with God. He told us that you can't worship God. Wealth, mammon, and God. You can't have two masters. You'll love one or despise the other. You have to choose who's going to be God, money or God, because they can't both come together. Paul writes, The money is the roots of all kinds of evil. Now, I want to be careful. Money is not evil. Money can be used for great good. Last week you heard me talking about how we pray that you give more money to the church so we can support missionaries. Money is not morally good or bad. It's just a tool. It can be used for evil. It can be used to build idols and false statues. It can be used to exploit people. Or it can be used to send missionaries. It can be used to build churches. It can be used to bring other staff people on. It can be used to buy curriculum for children's ministry. Money doesn't care. (laughs) Money's just money. But wealth, when it touches the hands of a human being, starts to take on the shape of that human being's heart. And when you worship money, when you worship money, it corrupts your heart. And it poisons your heart. And it grabs a hold of your heart. And it also expels God from your heart. It's been said that money... Makes a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. Money makes a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. So don't hear what I'm not saying under this first point. I pray that you make a lot of money and give a lot of it away for the glory of God. Amen? I'm not not angry about you having stuff. I think, praise the Lord for the saints before us who gave tons of money to build this awesome building that we're inside of right now. Money is something that could be used for great good. But here in Ephesus, a whole industry around the wealth was formed that corrupted people's souls and formed entire industries around that. And that still happens today. (laughs) There are entire industries that destroy people today, that exploit people today. The whole sex trafficking industry today. What was the thing that just blew up the other day? That that website, uh, Ah, forgive me, I don't know what's up my head. Somebody shouted out. It was on OnlyFans. Did you guys follow that a couple weeks ago? OnlyFans. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that money shapes around, and all of a sudden people build their livelihood on that so that now they're ensnared and trapped so that people who need extra money are videoing themselves and sending that to the world. Idolatrous wealth. And when Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, just like that teenage boy with my twin brother saying, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm giving this up. I might have to find a new job. I might have to find a new hobby. I might have to find something else to build with my life, but I'm not going to build idolatry. I'm not going to build this kind of industry that hurts other people. Demetrius had a real reason to be afraid. He was not Seeing things inaccurately. One of the things I appreciate about Demetrius is he's actually somebody that sees what's happening and he sees the implication of what's happening and he calls a spade a spade. Like Demetrius is not just a fear monger here. Demetrius is spot on, but Demetrius should have submitted his heart to Jesus, should have submitted his heart to the way. And even if it caused him, burning all of his books or giving up all of his idol making. I mean, there's a lot of cool things you can make with silver. A lot of useful things you can make with silver, Demetrius, that don't involve hammering into the shape of a goddess and bowing down and worshiping it. As you think about your life, before we go on to this next point, what is Jesus calling you to turn away from? You might even get some of your livelihood from it. What is the wealth that has a grip on your life? that Jesus would turn us from that thing and recreate. And like Demetrius, it's not like you have to give up silversmithing altogether. I think of my brother. He eventually started touring the world, playing with a Christian rock band and influenced the world for Jesus. Jesus probably wants to redeem that very thing that you're using in a corrupt way right now. And so think about it. Whatever the Holy Spirit's writing or putting in your heart, write that down today and pray on that. Because Jesus wants to turn you away from that thing so that you could worship him instead. Jesus turns the world away, and the first thing he turns the world away from is idolatrous wealth. Secondly, Jesus turns the world away from religious nationalism. Religious nationalism, verses 28 to 34. So remember, he's brought together the craftsmen. He's got them all riled up. He's got them in a stage of fear and anger. Beginning in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the, excuse me, Aziarchs, those are the top Asian officials who are now believers, who are friends of his, sent to him and were urging him, urging Paul, do not venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. Isn't that how riots and mobs work, right? Like, what are we, Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But listen to this. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Could you picture this? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They are in this theater. Now, this theater still stands today. I want to put a picture of this up. This theater could hold about 25,000 people. You can go visit it today in Turkey. All right, this is a huge place. So if you're picturing people, like 100 people jammed into Tyrannus' lecture hall, this is not that picture at all. It's not like Manoa Community Church, people yelling. This is like the whole city. Thousands of people are whipped up into this frenzy because this guild has now stirred them up like, this city is going down. These guys are a threat to who we are as Ephesians, and we're not going to have it here. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Unless you wonder if that's what they chanted, they start that chant, and at the end, Luke wants us to be clear, for hours, hours until they're raw in the throat, they are shouting at the top of their voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, what you're seeing there is very common in humanity. It's called religious nationalism. And all religious nationalism is, is a fusion of their spiritual backstory and convictions with an ethnic and national pride when that religious zeal and civic pride fuse together inseparably that to be an Ephesian is to be a worshiper of Artemis. And to be a worshiper of Artemis is to be an Ephesian, like her temple is here. This is our turf. These people who are outsiders and intruders need to get out of here because you're not an Ephesian. Now, it is clear this often happens in religious nationalism as well, that it takes on a racist overturn. Because remember, when Alexander, verse 33, goes to make an offense, a defense, excuse me, they realize what? Look again, it's right in your text. When they recognize that he was a Jew, do you think that calmed them down? Oh, no. That poured gasoline on that fire. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Get him out of here. And religious nationalism is the default impulse of humanity. If you doubt me, just look at what's happening in Afghanistan right now. You see those white flags that the Taliban are bringing in for their nation? You know what it says? There's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Looks pretty in the Arabic, right? But they're making sure that everybody knows and if you don't agree with them, you're done. That's how this works here. That pressure, that creep to come in and say, if you're not with us, you're done, you're dead, you're out. And most of humanity, most of the nations, including Israel until Jesus showed up, operated this way, right? That we have to hold and toe the line to be ethnic and a nation, a nation, and our beliefs all come together with our geographic boundaries. But when Jesus entered the world, crazy things started to happen. First, because the blessing promised to Israel was a blessing for all the nations in Genesis 12. Please say for my believers that you knew that. Say yes. Yes. That the blessing's supposed to spill out to all the nations. But originally what we thought, and we've seen this in the book of Acts, is therefore I guess either there'll just be an indirect blessing or all the nations will become Jewish. And when Jesus emerges, people are always trying to trap Jesus. Do you remember the Herodians? Their are a fusion of loyalty to Rome and loyalty to Israel under Herod. They tried to trap him in Matthew 22. And they said, is it lawful, Jesus, to pay Taxes to Caesar or not. you remember this? Because <laughs> it's kind of that you're, you're done either way. Like, if you say no, they'll be like, treasonous. He's not going to pay taxes to Rome. Kill him, right? But if you say yes, then all the Jewish people are going to be like, he's, he's a traitor. Like, he's paying taxes to the enemy. Like, and so your chapter is like, whichever way I go, I'm done here. Like, <laughs> got Jesus. And these words that have never been echoed anywhere by any prophet, by any rabbi ever before hit the world stage and rippled out and created something we never heard of before. He said, whose inscription is on that coin? He said, it's Caesar's. All right then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to thing, the things that are God, the things to God, right? Do you remember that? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And all of a sudden, they just had like a, like, that was a pretty good one, Jesus. You know, they like backed out. They were confounded. They were like, whoa, because obviously it's Caesar's inscription on this. And so if you don't give Caesar the money that he printed, like there's a loyalty baked into our New Testament that says, Remember, all our passages about submitting to the government were written under Roman occupation. This was not a constitutional United States of America democracy, all right? These were written under pagan rulers saying, submit to them, and at the same time, we could still be loyal to God. And they didn't have the power and the influence. Paul didn't have the sword. He wasn't even gunning for the sword. And yet he turns the whole Roman Empire, Jesus ultimately does upside down across every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And what Protestants have called this is the doctrine of the two kingdoms. You can look it up later, but Luther believed it, Calvin believed it, Jesus taught, like that's baked into your Bible. Is that we can be loyal, even if we're in a godless nation, even if you're a Christian living in China, you can be a holy, godly, Christian and live in a regime that doesn't love God. You can live in Ephesus and not be one that's tearing down statues. You don't have to buy them, please don't buy them. But that Christianity in that sense can spread to all the nations and be loyal subjects to wherever we live as best we can, as long as it doesn't make us to bow the knee to bail, you know, those kind of things. And also where our faith spreads and it's not based upon us getting the levers of Rome, all right, where we don't fuse those together. And most people look at church history and say, once we got all the political power, that's where the church started to lose our message, right? Like that's when somebody is forced to believe in Jesus because a sword is pointing at their neck. What do they really believe? who knows? (laughs) I believe in Jesus. Like, everybody believes in Jesus, right? No, that's not how faith works. The only way you know what you really believe is if you're not compelled to believe it, right? (laughs) In fact, Christians always had to stand up against the pressures against their belief, right? To be public for Jesus. And so what we see is wherever Christianity has spread, the idea of religious liberty, brothers and sisters, was not an idea that our founders put into the Constitution, right? You know, like the separate, that idea that, uh, that you're free to worship according to your conscience. They didn't come up with that idea. That was something uniquely birthed in a Christian mindset, which is also sadly why lots of parts of the world, it does not exist unless they're copying sort of a secular version of it. But as believers, especially if we're the majority, we should not enjoy religious liberty until we get enough voters to get rid of it. If that's your dream of America, if we just got enough of us so we can get everybody else out of here, could I challenge you that I don't think that's what the Bible teaches nor what the church should stand for? That wherever Jesus spreads, true worship spreads, and true worshipers emerge, not because they're forced to, not because a good Ephesian believes this. Because the Holy Spirit has saved that individual and changed them from the inside out. Amen? Amen. Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 23, verse 3. I love the There's so much in our our confession, I'll hit this in the class, that you'll never see in a short statement of faith, but I went into this, listen to this, this is under chapter 23, we have a whole chapter on civil authorities, would you believe it? It is the duty of civil authorities to protect the person and good name of everyone so that none are abused, injured, or insulted on account of religious faith or lack of it. It is also their duty to see to it that all religious and ecclesiastical, that's church assemblies, are held Without disturbance. That's coming from a distinctly Christian perspective. Now, I realize there's far more to wrestle with. What if there's not a distinctly Christian perspective and we lose that? But Christians should be advocating for religious liberty, never religious nationalism. And appealing for the rights of others. Our beliefs can stand on their own two feet. Amen, brothers and sisters. We don't need any help from from Washington or anywhere else. Now, if they would stay out of our business and let us worship according to our conscience, that would be a great help as well, all right? But the whole point here is, brothers and sisters, wherever Jesus comes in, he takes away this kind of religious nationalism in Ephesus and he unhinges the sense of loyalty to that nation and places it in a king, namely Jesus, of all the nations, all the tribes, and all the tongues, throughout all of time. I shared earlier that the Apostle John eventually ends up in Ephesus. There's even speculation that Mary goes with him, Jesus' mom, because remember at the cross, Jesus points to John and says, behold your mother, behold your son. So there's a house there with Mary's name. You can go visit it in Turkey today. I don't know if that's really where Mary went or not. Sometimes these things get... But John definitely ended up in Ephesus. You know, in the temple to Artemis... It continued after this riot for decades, for hundreds of years even. But you know, as Christianity took root into... Okay, here you go. That's what's left of Artemis' temple today. You saw the picture earlier. Out of the 121 columns, that one pillar remains. (laughs) That one column remains. By 407 AD, her name was erased from all of the inscriptions all over the city. You know, and... It's not because Paul went around with a chisel and a hammer or John came back and circled back with sandpaper, all right? And so I'd also challenge this church. There's things that will happen. We're committed to preaching Christ and him crucified and building the church of Jesus Christ, leaving the results to God. And when that happens 400 years later, nobody wants to worship Artemis anymore anyway, right? The temple collapses and said, who who even goes there, right? Because the whole world has been persuaded and turned away. That is how God changes nations and changes the world and changes hearts, starting in our day, but then also into the future. Jesus turns the world away from idolatrous wealth. Secondly, he turns the world away from religious nationalism. Thirdly, Jesus turns the world away from riotous rage. Riotous rage, verses 35 to 41. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, so remember they're in that theater of 25,000 people can fit in there. They're shouting, great is Artemis over and over of the Ephesians for over two hours, one voice. The town clerk finally gets in, somehow quiets the crowd and listen to what he says. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet, do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further... It shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The riot is quelled by the town clerk. This riotous rage we saw in verse 28 when they heard this, they were enraged. That's what starts riots, right? This overwhelming wrath and rage spills out. And the confusion, remember, in the riot... (laughs) Some of them didn't even know why they were there, but they just got whipped up into the frenzy, and that'll sell. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That just speaks to you. You were, as an infant, looking at this great temple and this great statue, and so you, whatever's going on here, I'm all in. I'm an Ephesian, and fortunately, the town clerk who is an Ephesian comes in and settles them down. How does he do it? First, he settles them down by appealing to uh He appeals to the fact that the stone that fell from the sky cannot be, do you see that, cannot be denied. He says, we got undeniable evidence that she is here to stay, guys. Chill, all right? Now, people have scratched their heads for years at this passage, like, what stone fell from the sky? And if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, so ESV says fell from the sky, NIV says fell from heaven, King James says fell from Jupiter, or New King James fell from Zeus, all right, so they're thinking of the heavens. Zeus is at the pinnacle of the heavens, all right? So this stone came from Zeus himself right to Ephesus. Probably a meteorite, right? We have examples of that throughout history. So they got this sacred stone, and they say, like, the story is undeniable. We are the temple keeper, all right? And they kind of, okay, take a deep breath. Yes, nobody can take away Artemis. We have the stone, all right? So that was the first thing that relaxed them there. Then also he does say this, these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now that's insightful because the language is sacrilegious there. They're not temple robbers. So again, he's saying these guys have done nothing to our temple. They haven't desecrated. They haven't gone in. They haven't pushed the statue over at night. <laughs> they haven't gone in taken your shrines and beat them into powder dust. They haven't done that. And he says they're not blasphemers of our goddess. Now, I'm sure maybe privately Paul spoke out against her, so I'm not sure how well informed he is. But implicitly, either way, monotheism always implicitly will reject other gods and goddesses, right? So implicitly, but maybe Paul never, I mean, he was probably smart enough not to, in Tyrannus's hall, that's where he did his lectures daily, like, okay, for the next three hours, I'm going to talk about the evils of the Greek pantheon. Like, that probably would not have gone over well. So he positively put forward Jesus and Christianity the way when the logic clicks and when people are born again, they stop buying statues. Do you see it? And so he was able to say, these guys haven't, Paul hasn't done anything to your silversmith business. He hasn't done anything to our temple. Back off. And the riot calms down, dismisses, and goes away. You know, and. Luke has a purpose in all of these recountings because remember, they've been here for two years and three months, right? And there's lots of stories he could have shared, but he chose this one. Now, it was a big one, but there's these stories punctuated throughout Luke often that tell these stories of mob justice, tell these stories of Paul before authorities who say, like, hey, he didn't break the rules or crimes here. There's stories of, obviously, Stephen's martyrdom, in chapter seven, where Stephen's just preaching the gospel and they throw stones at him. Paul is stoned in Lystra in chapter 14. And he's beat up in Philippi uh, because he exercised that demon. Here, he's done no crimes. Chapter 21, we'll see another riot in Jerusalem when Paul goes to his own hometown, right? And every time, here's the thing I want you to see, brothers and sisters. Every time Luke wants us to be crystal clear, the Christians didn't start it. Do you see it? Paul did not start that riot. Paul did not, you know, invite people to throw stones at. They were just preaching Jesus. They were loving people. They were being faithful. Paul wanted to go into the riot. He couldn't even get in there. This was not Paul, an instigator of civil unrest, all right? Paul is going to make sure he goes and takes down Ephesus. Every time, every time, every time Luke records these riots, every time he he records all of this mob justice, every time the Christians are the passive ones being attacked. They are never, never, never the ones, never the ones instigating it. Never. Never. Say that again. And church, we need to hear that. So we've lived through a lot of riots the last few years, haven't we? And on, this is the left and the right I'm speaking to right now. I don't care where you feel, fall on that political spectrum. But on the left, I mean, we had riots against racism, right? And people were destroying black business owners' businesses. Like NPR recorded that, right? Like you're not doing yourself any favors. You're hurting people. You're hurting the very people you claim to be angry about and helping. And on the right, I mean, January 6th. The crowd who says they're back in the blue is beating up the blue. No! Riots fix nothing. They never have. They never will. They fix nothing. And We need to hear from everybody. God wants to do a work in America, and I believe he wants the church to be part of the healing. But being whipped up into the frenzy, where we're starting to throw rocks through windows... Or, great is Jesus of America. Like, please. Wherever we land where we think we can fix this with our rage, will never work, never has, never will. Never will. Can I get an amen? amen. We must be part of the solution. I, I'm amazed this spreads so fast without social media. Because today we have an accelerator, don't we? Like the moment something ticks people off. <laughs> You know, it blows up, and all of a sudden the rage, the rage, the rage. And listen, some of it is a desire for seeing the world fixed, seeing real justice, and on both sides, there's wrestling with how do we fix what's broken. And so riots break out to try to somehow fix what's broken by breaking things. Doesn't work that way. But our Lord Jesus Christ, who could have I mean, shoot, he had the, the, the mobs in and the crowds in his hand when he entered Jerusalem, didn't he? I mean, they were, they were waving the palm branches. If he wanted, he could have not only called out people to turn. I mean, when Peter pulled the sword out, you remember this, in the Garden of Gethsemane and cut off the ear of Malchus, and he healed his ear and said, put the sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He said this to Matthew, don't you think I could call down 12 legions of angels right now and wipe all of these people out? With my rage and anger and fury and wrath, I could be done with this right now. But the way God heals the world is not with Pouring out his rage on those who oppose justice and mercy. The way God chose to heal the world is to take that wrath in himself on the cross. To tell the angels to stay their blades. And remain horrified in heaven as the son of God lays down his life on the cross. And there where the rage and the wrath of God for your sins and our sins and the brokenness of this world is poured out on Jesus Christ, the only sinless Savior and Son of God. And he took that rage and he took that wrath on the cross so that there at the cross is the only place where perfectly justice and mercy meet. And from that place, healing now ripples out to the entire world. To the entire world. And if you want to see justice and if you want to see mercy, if you want to see the world fixed, put the stone down. Pick up your Bible and share Jesus. Share the hope of Christ. And I'm not saying you can't get politically involved. Christians have a place in every arena. But it's not going to be by beating up our enemies. We're going to turn the other cheek. We're going to love our enemies. We're going to pray for those who persecute us. And we're going to preach Jesus another day and another day and another day. And we're going to build the church of Christ until he comes back. Because the only hope of the world is not found in rage and riots. is not found in religious nationalism. It's certainly not found in idolatrous wealth. It's found at the foot of the cross. And Jesus is about the business of turning the whole world Every nation, every tribe, the left and the right, and everywhere in between, to the cross of Christ, where hope, mercy, grace, love, healing, reconciliation is found, now and forevermore. Amen. Church, let's stand. if you're here today and you haven't turned to Jesus before we close with the song of worship I want to give you a chance to turn to him even now. If you're persuaded in your heart that Jesus is the way, is the truth is the life, you believe that he died on the cross to take the wrath of God for you and to forgive you of all of your sin, of all of your idolatry of all of the things that would ensnare you. You can do that right now. If you're persuaded, turn away right now. Turn in your heart with real faith, not because there's any external compulsion, but only because the power of the Holy Spirit is beating in your heart right now to say, do it. Turn to him and say, Jesus, forgive me for my idolatry. Forgive me for my anger and rage. Forgive me for trying to fix the world apart from the cross of Christ. Today, I turn to you. Today, I repent of my sin and place my faith in Jesus. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead for me. And I trust in you. Give me your spirit right now so that I could walk in your ways here into eternal life, I pray. And for the church, God, we pray that you would forgive us where we misrepresent the gospel. We pray that you would forgive us when we think that in our own flesh we can wage war rather than the tools that you've given us, namely the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And so God, we ask God that you would make us a men and women who are persuasive, like Paul, that people would turn away because they want to, because they believe what we believe and they believe in whom we have believed in. And may we be a community, Lord, where we see grace, mercy, and justice come together at the cross and help us to have eyes of faith how to work that out in Havertown how to work that out in Delaware County, how to work that out in Philadelphia and see that work its way out to the very ends of the earth. God, fill us. God, use us. God, make us believers who walk with you, for you, now and always we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.